This will be our last Sunday in Acts for this year. And I also, before I dive in, I just want to say thank you to anybody who came up here and helped us christmas fire this place. It was a lot of fun to be together and drink hot chocolate and have a cookie contest, and we got a ton done in a very short period of time. So thank you. I, I appreciate all everybody's help. So last week, I, I said it was weird because, because two weeks ago, we had, uh, we talked about Peter's process, and then last week we looked at Peter's sermon to Cornelius, the Gentile, and I made a joke that I'm preaching a sermon on a sermon, which is kind of an odd thing. Well, it gets even weirder this week, because now Peter is going back to the brothers in Jerusalem, and he's giving them a message about his sermon that the sermon that he gave to Cornelius. So it's not a sermon on a sermon, it's kind of like a sermon on a sermon on a sermon. And so it was just weird because it's on two Monday, kind of when I was looking at this, I was looking at it and realized it's identical all, upon first glance. This passage is identical to what we looked at last week. And so, um, of course, at last week was Cornelius, the first Gentile convert in Christianity. And so Luke, he's giving us a third account of the same thing, the second really long account for what's going on. And for a brief moment, I will admit, I, I considered just skipping this passage. And just moving on to, to what's next. But on Tuesday, Tuesday's my day when I get the most studying and praying done. I kind of just, it kind of hit me. Okay, this is important enough to both Luke and God to repeat in its entirety. So it's important maybe for us to look at as well a second time in its entirety. And the more I looked at it, I could see that this isn't the same text. Luke isn't just... Uh, showing us what happened again when Peter was preaching to Cornelius. Luke is showing that when Peter came back to Jerusalem, they had a dilemma. I mean, they had a major theological dilemma on their hands. They, they weren't liking what Peter was telling them. And what Luke is showing us in this passage that's different from the one last week is he's not just telling us that they have a dilemma. He's showing us the process that the early church worked through to work through this dilemma. So it's not just that they have a dilemma, it's how they resolved it. And so there's a lot here for us to walk through and see both in that particular dilemma, but then how you work out any kind of theological dilemma uh, that the church may face. And I would even stretch it out to, it's not just major theological dilemmas like this, but really any time that we're seeking guidance from God, that's some sort of theological dilemma. Like we're, we're wanting to know God's guidance on a number of things. It, you know, I hear single people say, does God want me to get married? And, and if so, to who? Well, that's a theological issue to work through. We have, because of our special relationship with Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, it's often that I'll find myself with a student walking through a theological dilemma on baptism. You know, I might, others in this church, me included, would would be seeking God's guidance on how to parent and educate our kids. And one, there's one new one, I, I say new, I just didn't hear it that much, say 10 years ago, and I feel like I hear it so much now. People are saying, I, I, I love Jesus, but do I really need the church? And you, you hear people saying it, you see it on Twitter. I have a lot of friends who are like, say things like, hey, Jesus and I are fine. I don't think I need the church anymore. I've been, I've been outside of the church for 18 months with COVID. I like my Sundays. Uh, uh, that's, that's their theological dilemma. But it's, it's one that I hear a lot. But whatever it is, whatever it is where we're seeking guidance from God, I want us to see in this passage kind of a framework for it. So we're going to walk through and we're going to see what their dilemma was, 
We're then going to look at the process that they worked through, and then we're going to look at their outcome. And so we're going to process their dilemma, but eventually through the process, hopefully, uh, hopefully be able to see something that can help us all walk through any real theological question that we have. So first, what was the dilemma? I hope if you've been coming the past three weeks, you know the dilemma. The dilemma is, does a Gentile need to first become a Christian, a Jew, before becoming a Christian? Because up until this point, everyone that has given themselves to the God of the Bible has had to fully become Jewish. Up until now. Up until this guy, Cornelius. So Peter is beginning to understand that the whole point of the Old Covenant, the whole point of the law, is to point to Jesus. And as is normal, let me say, Peter in this stage of his faith, I don't think Peter writing first and second Peter is the same, he's in the same spiritual place. But in this, in this stage, Peter needs a little help. Peter, uh, it's because he needs help, God gives Peter this vision. He actually gives it to him three times, letting him know that you can eat whatever it is that you want to eat because, as Jesus said, it's not what you ingest that makes you unclean. It's what's already deep inside you, your sin, that makes you unclean. And so then you have Cornelius, this Roman centurion who we see is a God-fearer. He is somebody who has an affinity to you know, uh, one God as opposed to a bunch of pagan gods. He has an affinity specifically to Judaism. And God gives Cornelius a vision. And he says, go send some people to Joppa because in Joppa there's a guy named Peter. Bring him back. He will tell you everything that you need to hear. So... He sends people to fetch Peter, and it's on that, that journey from Joppa to Cornelius in Caesarea that Peter has his theological breakthrough. And his breakthrough is he realized, realizes that God is not partial. God's not partial. He's not partial to one culture. He's not partial to one nation. He doesn't favor Israel over the other nations. So people from other nations, when they convert, they don't have to first become Jewish to become Christian. He doesn't favor one nation in that way anymore. Now, that doesn't mean that Israel is not special. That doesn't mean that God didn't use them in a very particular and special way. But we have to remember the end goal, as we see it all the way back in Genesis, when God tells Abraham, through your descendants, the nations will be blessed. And so this is that moment when the nations are blessed through Jesus, that that message of Jesus goes from Jerusalem, and it ceases to be a small Jewish ethnic-based religion, and it becomes global. It becomes a global religion going to the ends of the earth, as it was always planned to do. And so as Gentiles, us, most of us, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, I think it's very easy to look at this passage and say, great, I'm so glad that Peter made that decision because this is good news because it let all of us in. But I want us to kind of take a moment and try to put ourselves in the shoes of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem who were hearing Peter come back with this message. So these were people who had, they believed in Jesus, but they had worked hard to do all these other things. They'd obeyed the law. They'd obeyed the the cleanliness laws, they obeyed the Sabbath, they got circumcised, and then there are all these Gentiles, you're saying they don't have to do any of that? All they need to do is place their faith in Jesus? That would have been hard to hear. But there's, there's something else going on here as well. There's another aspect that would have been hard for these Jewish believers to hear. These Jews really did have a privileged position in the world. 
They really did look down on the rest of the world. They had a privileged and special position because God did have a unique covenant with them. And so they knew that a Savior was coming, and their, expectat their expectation is that Savior was going to overthrow Rome and restore Israel to its rightful ruling place in the world. That was their expectation. And here's Peter coming back and saying the Savior has come, but instead of making Israel rule the world, guess what he's saying? God now shows no partiality. I mean, that would have been devastating if you were expecting this, the Savior, the Messiah, to come and make Israel rightful rulers of the world. And you hear, now God shows no partiality. That would have been hard. And so this is at the heart of verses 2 and 3. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? I think this is the nicest way they could ask. What in the world are you doing here, Peter? This is, this is crazy. What are you talking about? And I feel like I've been empathetic enough to give a comparison that's not as, as empathetic. The men here, to me, the, the believers in Jerusalem who are not liking what Peter's having to say, to me, remind me of that guy whose life plateaued at high school football. You know, he's 40 years old, he's wearing his letter jacket, watching all the old films, he's living vicariously through what the team's doing today, maybe living vicariously through, uh, through his own son, if he's playing on that team. But to that guy, he can't emotionally leave high school and go to whatever's next, college, job, family. He emotionally stays there because in high school he was important. In high school he was special. In high school he was known and he was privileged. And even if what's what is ahead is better. He doesn't want to go there if it means that he's not special and privileged the way he was in high school. And so high school, it's meant as a, as a pedagogical, that means a teaching tool, to bring us to a better place, a bigger place, a more mature place, a wiser place. And in the same way, the circumcision party isn't realizing that the old covenant is the same thing. It's a pedagogical teaching tool meant to lead God's people to a bigger and better place. But they don't want to go to that bigger and better place if it's going to mean they, they lose their special privilege in the earlier smaller place. So, that's the situation. One commentator, I thought this was especially poignant and clear, writes, it required, that is the whole situation for these Jewish believers, it required a major readjustment of all thinking for a people. A people who are fiercely conscious of racial privilege and stirred anew by the thought that the Messiah of promise had appeared and spoken readily to abandon the thought that a unique national destiny approached fulfillment. To see Israel melt into the church and the minority of the chosen lose identity and privilege and special place in a global organization called for the situation called for insight, faith, self-abnegation, magnanimity, and a transcendent view of God rarely found in any but the most enlightened souls. And so I've we've talked about partiality for this would be now the third sermon, but Luke is saying it over and over, so I'm going to talk about it again. I think it's especially worth hearing for us as 21st century, largely white Americans, especially 21st century, especially if you grew up in the 20th century as I did, we are uniquely tempted 
to see ourselves as having some sort of special privilege with God. I mean, just because of all the great things that happened to the United States of America, great things, we are more positioned to see ourselves as culturally privileged. And it shows in lots of the ways that we do global missions, that we do, uh, that we do church planting around the world. We bring our cultural biases to play, and when we, we instruct them how, how to do music our way, how to dress our way, how to use grape juice at communion. None of these things are, are bad or arguing with, but they're just uniquely American and uniquely and sometimes white. And so when we're doing that, saying you need to do it this way, we are saying God favors our culture. This is one of the ways that we see it. Some of the ways we see it are a little more serious. I think I've said this story once before, but my wife, the, the first Baptist church that she grew up in, and I'm very thankful for a lot of the people there today, but when she was in middle school, the pastor and the youth pastor almost got fired out of an upheaval because they allowed a black boy to sing in the choir. I mean, those people at that point were what was happening, seeing him and seeing him as their equal, their unknowing special privilege status that they had put in their minds was being challenged. And what they're saying is he can't come in here unless he looks like us and acts like us culturally. My grandfather was a notorious racist. If you're above a certain age, you'll appreciate that. You'll, you'll understand what I mean when people used to say that my grandfather made Archie Bunker look like a liberal. Some of you don't know who Archie Bunker is, but that just means he's a racist. And he would regularly tell us why we are privileged because we are growing up in a white Christian family. And he would tell us why, contrast, all the different races. And I didn't grow up in the Deep South. I grew up here in Orlando, Florida. Unless anyone thinks that I'm jumping on a bandwagon or overreading anything into this text... Literally every commentary I read this week said the same thing. They related it to nation and to race. And some of these commentaries were written before, long before I was alive, and some of these commentaries were not written by Americans at all. Every commentary addresses this. And I know there's some people who have said to me, well, Jim, yes, you know that exists in your wife's deep south heritage, maybe in your past, maybe outside the church, but it doesn't exist here, so stop talking about it so much. And to that person, I would say, yes, it does. It does exist here. Because I had somebody two years ago say to me, talking about blacks and Latinos, that there are churches for those kinds of people in this church. And what that person was meaning is, this is the church. So it's here. The sin of partiality is here. We have the same problem that they did. Because, by God's grace, we, we live in a fruitful time in many ways. But So we have to see the problem, and Luke's showing us what the problem is, but he doesn't stop there, praise God, because we stop there, we probably just end up in a fight. He shows us how this early church worked its way through this really difficult problem. And so this is the process for addressing the dilemma. I see three things that Peter did that seem very wise to me, and three things that I think we certainly can apply to this issue, but we can apply to lots of different issues when it comes to Wanting theological guidance or even disagreements or dilemmas between believers in the same church. So the first thing that I noticed about Peter is that he was a prayerful man. Verse 5, before anything had happened yet, Peter says, I was in the city of Joppa praying. So if any theological disagreement ever comes up, the first thing we need to do is pray. We don't need to engage anybody else if we're not first engaging God over this thing. 
then I, I see it in my own life. You know, I, I've seen disagreements that I have with someone where I just, I want to go and I, my, my flesh wants to just lay into them. Not physically, I would, but like verbally, just lay, lay into them. And then I'm convicted because, no, I haven't prayed about this at all. And I start praying about it. And I notice my whole attitude toward that person changes. I don't want to just win anymore. I don't want to just be right. What I want is a restored fellowship. What I want is understanding and unity. And that fundamentally changes the way that I'm going to go into that conversation. And I think you can see Peter's, the fruit of pre Peter's prayerful life. That's a lot. Peter's prayerful life in his humility in the way that he goes back to these brothers in Jerusalem. Because he, he could have walked in and just pulled the apostle card. I, I'm an apostle, so listen to me. I mean, if there's a card to pull, that's the card. But he doesn't do that. He goes in. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't belittle them. Luke says that he recounted everything, and this next word is important, precisely as it had happened. Because he doesn't want to just go in and dictatorially say, this is what we do now. He wanted them to be con con convinced in their minds and their hearts that this is really from God. And I think it's interesting that he had, he had six men go with him to observe what was going to happen with Cornelius. Uh, the Old Testament Deuteronomy for this kind of thing required three witnesses. I think Peter knew what was about to happen. He said, we're going to double that. And so, so he wisely and humbly had these six witnesses here. And I think that's fruit of his prayerful life. The humility that comes with fruit. Second, Peter defers to revelation. So he doesn't defer to his own wisdom, his own insight, his own views. He defers to the direct revelation that God had given him. So he's talking about the vision where God specifically is telling him that there is no food that's unclean. But really, Peter begins to understand the whole system of cleanliness and uncleanliness. It exists to show us that we are fundamentally unclean and Jesus is the one who makes us clean. All of that system points to Jesus. He's understanding this, and he's going back to this revelation that he got from God. And I want to be very careful and clear that the equivalent that we have today of Peter receiving this direct revelation from God is the full counsel of God in Scripture, in the Bible. Th those are equivalent things. So... And it was because Peter was an apostle. He was raised up by the Holy Spirit, carried along as he gave us his portions of the New Testament. And the same is true with Luke. So the first thing that we do is pray. The second thing that we do when we're looking for guidance and find ourselves in some sort of disagreement is go to the Word of God. The clearly revealed scriptures that we have in the 66 books of the Bible. So if we were addressing issues of partiality in our midst, we'd go to Acts 10 and 11. We would go to James 2. James builds on this later on. He says, Brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So in this kind of disagreement, we go to the word of God. And God speaks really clearly to us on these issues. But I get asked a lot, well, right, we, I agree, like the word of God, that's where we go. And the next question is, but, but does God speak to us in the way that he speaks to Peter today? Does, does that happen? And my answer is, certainly God speaks to us. 
but not in precisely the same way he did to Peter. So God, when he speaks to us, he's not speaking in a way that is going to change Scripture or change our understanding of Scripture. He may speak to us in a way that would bring us to a right understanding of Scripture, but he's not in the business of, of changing what he's already said. And it's worth noting, when he's speaking to Peter, he's not changing anything about the Old Covenant. He's simply telling them the restrictions have been re re released now that the reality has come. Having said that, the Holy Spirit does speak still to us in, in various ways. Not in a way that supersedes Scripture, not in a way that will ever be more clear than Scripture. But we have to be open to that as well, I think. So for me, there are three times that God has overwhelmingly and something just short of audibly said something to me. And for some of you, you're thinking, only three? For others of you, you're thinking, that's three too many. But I have three. One of them was when Angela and I were in our fourth year as missionaries in Italy. We, we sensed that there was a change coming. And Angela was pregnant with our first child, Turner. And we, we prayed and we went to scripture. And our choices in front of us at the time were uh, directing a ministry in Naples, Italy, or directing a ministry in Florence, Italy. And as we prayed, I overwhelmingly heard God say, go home. Like, it was, just, it was the clearest, I, I can't, it was, it was so clear, go home, go home. And this isn't, this isn't going against anything that we've been seeing in the Word or anything like that, but it was just clear, go home. And it was so clear to me that I thought maybe something was wrong with my son. But the call was to go home, and so we did that. And we have to be the only people in the history of the world to have decided between Naples, Italy, Florence, Italy, and chosen Mississippi. <laughs> Home for Angela is Mississippi. For me, I was going from one foreign country to another foreign country. But we were going home. About a month after moving to Mississippi, uh, Turner was born. And five weeks after that, God had Angela double over in pain. And that's when we found her cancer. And the crazy part of the story is that because her dad is a doctor in Mississippi, we found her cancer and she was in surgery in 48 hours. 48 hours. Anywhere else in the United States, it would have been six to eight weeks of tests. But because her dad was a doctor, all his friends were getting her in after hours, early lunch break, whatever. They got her in. Surgeon was on vacation and came home. Like we were, we had privilege in Mississippi, and we were very thankful for it. God, Lord knows if we'd been in Italy's socialized medical care system, that just that's a for sure wouldn't have worked. But so six to eight weeks in any other state, we find it 48 hours. The surgeon comes back and tells us that Angela was two weeks away from her cancer spreading everywhere. Two weeks. The doctors say, if you had been in any other state, she would not make it. So for us, we, we really had this deep sense that God was leading us and guiding us and speaking to us in a way that saved her life. But it happened, I'm convinced, because we had been praying and been seeking God's will through his word. That kind of revelation, or I would even call it guidance, I just don't... I'm hesitant to say that we're going to see it if we're not walking the power of the Spirit, praying to God, and building from what He has told us in His clearly revealed Word. Then, so Peter prayed, he drawn from God's revelation, and then lastly, this is, might be a little uncomfortable, he, he points to circumstance. He does, he points to circumstance. Verse 11, And behold, at that very moment, Three, that is the moment when he's being given the vision. He's on the roof in, in Joppa, the Tanner's house. 
At that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. So Peter's saying, at that very moment, I mean, are you not hearing how crazy this is? I wasn't at my home. I was at a random Tanner's house. And in that moment, the delegation, right after I received the vision, they appeared wanting to bring me to Cornelius. I mean, what would have happened if they had come an hour earlier? If an hour earlier, everything's changed. Peter's saying, at that moment, do you not see the way that God is confirming what I'm saying through the circumstances that arose? Now, circumstances aren't everything. And we've got to be careful about this. Because if we are not praying and we're not uh, leaning into the Word of God, we're not walking in the Spirit, then you know what we're going to do? We're going to take circumstances and we're going to... Make them say whatever it is we really want them to say. And so in my nine years of campus ministry, Angela and I saw a number of young men and women who would use circumstance to justify dating somebody that they don't need to be dating. And we heard all the circumstances you could imagine. Well, he sits right next to me in, in biology. And clearly, God, God wants us to date, right? I mean, why would he put him right next to me in biology if we weren't supposed to date and get married? Or maybe I'm the one that God wants to use as an instrument to bring that person to him. Why, why wouldn't I date him? Well, I can tell you, God's not saying that to anybody. And I did have someone in the first service come up and say, well, I'm just saying, I, I dated my, my, my wife. She wasn't a believer, and I was that instrument. That, okay, it does happen, but I'm saying that's God's grace, not God's normative, revealed will for us in the Word. And don't go Hosea on me either. That's... We have clear instruction. If these people would pray, if they would be in the Word and see what God has for a husband or for a wife, the instructions God gives us, they would know that. They would conclude, this isn't a relationship that, that I need to be in. And I would even put community in that. Peter had these six other people that he brought with him to observe and process with. So community is a part of it. But here's the real test with circumstances. Do they confirm what you're hearing from God in prayer through the Word? Do they confirm what you're already hearing from God in prayer and the Word? I think a really good example of that actually is this, this building right here. So way back in the day, um, the elders decided that they were going to buy a piece of property over where RTS used to be up that way. And uh, they paid $250,000 cash for it. And over the course of time, they had this... They, they, they knew we, they, we wanted a home, we wanted a place to do ministry out of. They'd been praying and searching for, for guidance in the scriptures, and there was just this big pause. There were a number of reasons. Maybe, maybe this isn't the place. And I don't know, maybe this isn't the place where we're going to, to make a, church, a, a building for the church. And around that time, out, out of the blue, at that very moment, somebody came up and said, Hey, I, I've got this land on Maitland Avenue, this land, better location. What if we swap land and we'll give you a million dollars cash in addition to that? So that was circumstances that, like, everybody, been, this is what we've been praying over. This is the thing that we've been asking God for. And look what just fell in our lap. So that's a, a good example of circumstances helping us to understand God's will. All right, so the order matters, is my point. Prayer, Bible, circumstance. Not circumstance, then Bible and prayer. And Peter got the order clear, and it led him to a clear outcome. This is where they land the plane, the outcome. We see the outcome in verses 17 and 18. If then God gave the same gift, that is the Holy Spirit, 
gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So the outcome was a clear understanding of God's will. Gentiles can become Christians without first becoming Jews because God favors. He's not partial to any one nation, but he's calling all the nations to himself. It was clear. Luke says that there was silence. I, I, I interpret that to say no one was arguing anymore. And then they glorified God, praising him for the repentance of the Gentiles that God has granted them. So they're going from disagreeing with each other to praising God together. This process brought unity, it brought praise, it brought peace to the church as it pertains to this issue of partiality. But we can't just tie a bow in that. Because this issue of partiality, it doesn't go away. If you know your Bible, it comes up again in Acts 15. It comes up again when Paul writes his letter to the Galatians. And in that situation, it was Peter who had messed up. The very person who had given, been given this revelation. And then it comes up again in Acts 21. This issue persists, so we can't think, we can't have this idea that we have it all figured out. We have to constantly be in this process, constantly be on guard. We need to hear this more than once, obviously, because Luke is telling us more than once. There is a struggle that will always exist with partiality. Sometimes it comes from outside the church, sometimes it comes from inside the church, but it's something we need to be on guard for in our community and in our hearts. Partiality, at its core, is an attempt to cleanse ourselves. It's an attempt to self-cleanse, to adhere to self-made standards that we can live up to. We create these own standards that we can live up to so that we can avoid the standards that God is putting before us that none of us can live up to, that we're all going to fall short of. Believing, because we have these lowered standards we're putting in our lives, believing that we're better than others and that God fundamentally loves us more than others because we're special in some way, because we want to feel special. When we do that, that's a self-made gospel. And that is never going to really fulfill us because you're always going to know somebody, whatever set of standards that you have, you have created, we have created for ourselves, there's always going to be somebody who does it better. There's always going to be someone that is better than us, that receives by our system more love from God than us. So what we need isn't to create a new system of cleanliness and uncleanliness. We need someone to unstain us. And that is what Jesus is here to do, to come and to clean us fully through the call of God, his finished work on the cross. And when Christ comes into our lives, he not only cleans us up, he brings us into a glory that makes everything else we've looked to for status and privilege just feel faded and worthless. So the core issue here is pride. When we show partiality, we try to self-cleanse, we're, we're, we're being prideful because we want to feel better about ourselves. We want to look at other people and feel better about ourselves. In that moment, we're the one wearing the varsity jacket. We're the one looking at all these old films because we want to feel like somebody. Not knowing that what Christ is calling us into is something that is so great that we easily forget about our own glory because we get to be a part of His. 
when we're exposed to his own glory, we just we don't care about our own glory as much. So you, when we're tempted to not like the, the varsity football player, like the circumcision party, when we don't want to move on to what's bigger and better because we don't want to go from being a small fish, a big fish in a small pond, to be a small fish in a big pond, we're not realizing that the call is that we get to be with Christ, who is the whale of the ocean. So these Jews, they're concerned with national identity, not realizing that they're being offered a citizenship that is greater than anything on earth. In Christ, we become the children of God, every bit as righteous as Jesus Christ himself, not because we bring anything to the table, not because we have accomplished anything in and of ourselves, simply through the calling of God and the work of Christ. That's it. That's what qualifies us. God called us. Jesus did the work. So the magnitude of what we're given in Jesus Christ and the sheer unworthiness of all of us for what we're given, it should humble us to the point of wanting to take that jacket off and wanting to step into a glory that is bigger than anything we could ever create on our own, a glory that will never fade, a glory that will never be marred, and a glory that will never end. And that glory comes only in Jesus Christ. And so to circle back completely, the way we as a church process disagreements that we're going to have, the way we seek counsel is to follow Peter's example and lean into God through our prayer, seek his guidance through his word, have expected hearts through these circumstances. Because if we don't, if we don't model this process, we're going to be divided. We're going to come up with weird versions of Christianity, like some sort of Christianity where we have Jesus but not his bride. That's not a thing. We're going to make bad decisions in life. And we're, we're not going to know who to date and who to marry. But if we model this well, the result is peace and unity and praise that will fill our hearts with joy, that will give us wisdom, and that will proclaim the glory and the unity of Jesus Christ to a very needy and polarized world. So my hope as we finish our, our acts for the year is that we would want Christ's glory, that we would desire him, not what he can do for us, but we would desire him, and that our desire to know him more and experience his glory more would really just result in, in a sweet sense of unity here and, and really a light into a community that needs it. I think it's a very appropriate place. I, didn't, I, I, just, I just plan how many weeks we do. I, don't, I, I know next Sunday we've got to be on Advent. But I think this is a really sweet place to end for the semester. As we actually moved into something different, it's a nice little capstone for us after a very unique year. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful for who you are, for who your son is, for who your spirit is. And I pray that we would be a church marked by peace, unity, and love. I pray that we would have a deep gratitude that we are these, most of us, these Gentiles grafted in. We are the Corneliuses. You showed up to us. You opened our eyes. You brought us a message of a Savior who died for us. We did nothing. We contribute nothing. We offer you nothing. Yet you choose us. You love us. You save us. And we thank you for we love you and we pray this in the name of your Holy Spirit and your Son, Jesus Christ.